May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As Albert Einstein and the renowned physicists remind us, the quality of time is actually curved throughout the course of all eternity. And yet we mortals, you and me, experience time in serial and linear fashion. One step after another, each step marking a point in our lives. And as such, there's a before and an after. Things that lie behind, things that lie ahead. Things before September the 11th, things after 9-11. Things before Mary's death, things after Mary's death. Things before opening day and things after opening day. After all, this is cardinal nation. Time is an important dimension in our journey of Lent. And while not immediately discernible, the lesson we just heard from John's Gospel develops precisely these themes. What lies behind and what lies ahead. However, to begin to grasp the import of this text and the abrupt redirection of our Lenten journey, it demands that we examine its context. The entire chapter of John, which precedes the dinner at Bethany and the anointing of Jesus' feet, is devoted to a remarkably detailed account of the death of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, his entombment for four days, and his resurrection at the command of Jesus. Now, John also reports that while many of those who had witnessed this miracle believed that Jesus truly was the Son of God, some went to the Pharisees who, with the chief priest Caiaphas, determined to put Jesus to death. Thus, what lies behind today's text is the decisive moment in which the plot to execute Jesus was initiated, the specific event which provoked it, the resurrection of Lazarus, and the disingenuous charges of which he would later be accused, blasphemy in invoking the name of God and the signs and wonders which had characterized his ministry, and second, the threat he posed to the power of both religious and political elites. What directly follows this morning's gospel, therefore lies ahead, is the decision of the chief priests also to execute Lazarus. Since it was his continued presence who was perceived to be responsible for the large number of Jews abandoning the authority of the Pharisees and following Jesus. Now immediately thereafter, John then informs us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in anticipation of the Passover festival, the adulation of the crowd lining his path, and the outrage, the absolute outrage, of the Pharisees at this display of public adoration. Thus, as you and I approach the seemingly innocuous and joyful feast with these dear friends in Bethany this morning, we now understand that it is set not only in the context of a grateful family and adoring crowds, but also amidst the treachery of priests and Jesus' impending death. As the scene unfolds, 
Jesus is seated at the table with Lazarus, surrounded by his disciples. The ever-dutiful Martha is serving dinner to her guests after what can reasonably be assumed to have been careful planning and diligent preparation for such a celebratory occasion and so many guests. Despite all the likely buzz surrounding Lazarus' remarkable return from the dead, the discussion of the approaching holiday and trek into Jerusalem and the inevitable chatter at relaxed family gatherings. Tension, serious tension, if not sibling rivalry, then began to emerge. And here the story gets complicated. Having slaved quietly and unobtrusively in the kitchen for hours, can you imagine Martha's reaction at the outrageous behavior of her sister? Whereas John informs us, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, then bent over and wiped it with her hair. Not only has attention shifted from the sumptuous meal and compliments uh, Martha must have rightfully expected, now to an act of incredible humility, Martha also must have been helplessly pondering how to endure the squandering of a family's treasured resource, this wonderful perfume equaling almost a year's wages. Worse yet, she has to witness a gesture of such potential seduction, the wiping of feet with hair, that surely the party she had so meticulously planned would be remembered less for the culinary delights she prepared than for the scandal of her sister's behavior. You see, dear friends, by custom, first century Jewish women wear their hair up, only allowing it to drape down in the private company of their husbands. But forget Martha for a moment. Consider the reaction of the other guests around the table, all of whom were also faithful Jews. What were they going to make out of all of this? What were they supposed to think? What would they have to say? Breaking the tension in presumably stunned silence that must have enveloped the room, one of the disciples, none other than Judas Iscariot, presses Mary for an explanation of her frivolous waste. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, he demands, and the money given to the poor? Be sure, this is a reasonable query from the keeper of the corporate purse, and one who knew well Jesus' compassion for the poor. Clearly the situation was rapidly deteriorating and things quickly getting out of hand. However, Jesus will have nothing of Judah's comments, nor will he indulge the increasingly hostile banter. Sternly chastising Judas, he scolds him saying, leave her alone. She sought it so that she might be with me and anoint me at the time of my burial. Excuse me? We're at dinner. We're celebrating Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. This is a joyful occasion. Your burial? The assembled guests must have been shocked. 
After all, it is a festive occasion. Yet in this instance, in this moment, Jesus reveals what Mary, Mary understood, but the others did not. That Jesus' hour was approaching and that his death was imminent. Then in one of the most perplexing and troublesome statements in all of scripture, Jesus announces that you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Seemingly callous, dismissive, and even self-absorbed, Jesus appears to relegate poverty to the unalterable human condition, the fundamental state of the created order, and punctuates again for the dinner guests that his death is at hand. How, pray tell, could the Jesus of the Beatitudes so denigrate the poor? How could the Jesus who relished the gift of a penance from an impoverished widow now seem so cold to her plight? And how could the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead even conceive of his own? John the Evangelist has indeed given us much to consider in this morning's lesson from his gospel. It's important, I think, for us to note that unlike the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of which is assigned to be read in one of the three years of our lectionary cycle, the gospel of John is not. Rather, lessons from this gospel are interspersed throughout the rota over the course of all three years. Thus, when confronting one of John's texts, we're especially invited to explore its meaning in the context of a particular liturgical season and even on a particular Sunday, as well as its relationship to the central themes of the synoptic gospel appointed for that year. Furthermore, we're challenged to discern a voice and theological perspective quite distinctive from the other three evangelists. So in contrast to the Jesus of Luke's gospel, with which we're journeying this year, Jesus' gospel is reflected in Luke as a Christ who is readily accessible, compassionate, intensely concerned for societies marginalized. John's view of Jesus is very different. For him, Jesus is mystical, not of this world, but rather sent into this world to reveal the fullness of God to be the very incarnation, the very person of God. Prior to raising of Lazarus, which preceded today's text, Jesus announced to a confused and anguished Martha, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The self-revelation is a decisive moment in John's Gospel the proclamation of the reign of God that has already begun, that all that God wills and hopes for creation is fully available, not in the future, not in the by and by, not in heaven, but now. Now in the presence and gift of Jesus. And that even death will be conquered by Jesus. However, we know less than Martha are challenged by the very question that Jesus poses. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What lies behind the dinner and anointing at Bethany is a Jesus whose identity as God has been made known fully, completely, definitively, and an exhortation to faith, the faith that Martha and Mary shared, the faith you were invited to share as well. What transpires around the supper table in this morning's lesson certainly punctuates that God's purposes are being fulfilled in Jesus, that his death is approaching, and that he will no longer be physically present among his disciples or among us. But most important is what lies ahead. What are the followers of Jesus, you and me, then and now, to expect and experience in the already present new age where God reigns triumphant, where God reigns supreme? If Lazarus's resurrection signaled the depth and breadth of God made manifest in Christ, Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet is the companion act, pointing to the promise of discipleship for all who believe and marking it with an act of profound generosity and humility, an act that Jesus himself will soon repeat in the upper room. That the discipleship to which you and I have been summoned will be experienced individually is clearly reflected in Mary's singular personal act of devotion. To be sure each of us will touch the lives of others through our generosity and our tender mercies. Their lives and ours will experience the unbounded forgiveness of a gracious God. And each of us will be enriched beyond measure from the hands and hearts of a God whose love is limitless. However, I would argue it is not our unique encounters with God that the kingdom of God is most fully engaged. Rather, the discipleship to which we have been called as a church and the manner in which it is to be enacted is irreducibly communal, not individual, but shared. Our discipleship is to be lived out in the context of the body of Christ. Our discipleship is to be faithful companions with all who have affirmed Jesus' question of Martha. Do you believe? And quite simply, our discipleship is to be the church to be Christ's presence in a broken, busted, and pained world. That this is the challenge of discipleship in the name of the Christ, and thus the ongoing work of the church is made plain in Jesus' pointed response to Judas, vain concern for those whose resources are so meager. You always have the poor with you, Jesus observes. While Jesus' earthly existence will soon end, the care of those who are poor in spirit, poor in treasure, and poor in health has in this very moment been ceded to the cause of discipleship, to the church, to you, and to me for all time. Thus, as we encounter our Lenten journey and what lies ahead, may God embolden our baptismal covenant to seek and serve Christ in everyone. May God grace us in this Eucharistic meal with the generosity of Mary's spirit and the selflessness of a Christ who has given his all. And may God strengthen us, sending us from this table into the world as faithful disciples, humble servants, 
and witnesses to the presence which abides in us and lives with us always. Amen.